Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You are listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast. Today we have on, well, back on Don Chambers. Don, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's good to be back, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us a little bit, for the people who haven't listened to the first episode you were on, tell us a little bit about the situation that you're involved in and then some some interesting updates. All right. Well, I got investing in a business development company. Those are uh, companies that focus on the debt or equity of very small uh, companies, private equity, essentially. And the uh, BDC uh, that I got involved in buying shares of was first-hand technology value fund. It's ticker symbol is S as in Sam, VVC. So Sam, victory, victory, Charlie. And um, I acquired a bunch of the stock because the net asset value, the accounting view of what those st- that stock was worth, was high and rising from 20 headed up towards uh, what eventually reached almost $30 a share. Yet the market price uh, it was way down around uh, 7, 8, 10, up to 1.16. I think it might have even hit $17 a share. So I was enthusiastic for, uh, for the clients of uh, RIA that I uh, am CIO of and also for my own individual holdings. Uh, I knew when I did it that there were risks that, that are faced because uh, the, the um, managers of funds like this are being compensated by how many assets they have under management. So that can cause them to want to have a lot of assets and to value those assets highly. And you need to make sure that the managers are responsive to the shareholders' wishes, which are, of course, to pay less fees and to get their money, uh, their, uh, a profit on their investments. And my analysis of that indicated that I thought those things would be true. Uh, after a couple years of no dividends and a repeated reinvestment into the firm and, and, the, and seeing how much the fees were harming the company, and then the net asset value beginning to fall, uh, I uh, decided on, this, on behalf of myself only to put in a shareholder proposal uh, calling for the board of directors to liquidate the fund. Now, why didn't I do a proposal that said they must liquidate the fund? And the answer is because it would never be allowed by the SEC. Uh, The SEC uh, uh, rules that the uh, proposals must be non-binding. It isn't the role of shareholder votes to micromanage what the board of directors does, but uh, in, in almost all cases. But you can put in a, a, uh, an urging, and that's what this was, was requesting that they terminate the fund either by liquidating it uh, or merging it or uh, you know, getting us back what value was left. The stock price dropped from this $17 high or so down to, I think, 2 or $3 a share at one point. It's kind of come back up to around $4 a share since then. So I submitted the proposal, and literally it doesn't cost anything more. If that's all you're doing, uh, apparently, it doesn't cost any more than a postage stamp to submit that proposal. Now, you must have been a shareholder for at least a year with, with $2,000 worth of stock. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of, there's like 13 rules that you must obey. And that's one of them, to have been a, share, a shareholder for at least a year. 
And another one is that it can't be a binding proposal. And if you obey all those rules, which are easy to find on the web, you too can become an activist, whether you want to or not. And believe me, I, be, I came in very reluctantly to do mm. this. I wish I didn't have to do it. Interesting. So what, what's been the update since? Well, the shareholder meeting got delayed once because of the COVID, and then it got turned in at the last minute into a virtual meeting. And at one point, it looked like I wouldn't be able to get into that virtual meeting to present my proposal. Well, um, why, is, why is that? Well, I don't want to make any allegations that could be false. It could have been a simple uh, misunderstanding or bureaucracy. Uh, okay. But it, uh, I ended up contacting the SEC, and they were wonderful about it. And they made sure that... Uh, I was clearly informed of what I needed to do to get into that virtual meeting. And, and we're lucky to be in a country that has uh, capital markets that are regulated to the point where there's a good degree of market integrity. So a shout out to the SEC. Yeah, great. And so there was now there was a vote on a few things, right? There was a vote on uh, three matters. The matter one was to reelect two of the incumbent directors. Mm -hmm. uh, number two was to ratify the incumbent auditor. And number three was to uh, my proposal to, to, to uh, non-binding proposal urging the board of directors to liquidate the fund. Uh, the vote was announced at the virtual meeting. If, if you've never heard one of these meetings, it's kind of fascinating. I made a 500-word uh, a or so uh, talk on why the proposal was necessary, uh, but really the voting had all been done. And then they Within uh, it was like uh, 20 minutes into the meeting, they say basically the meeting is over and here's the result. And the result was that both board of directors got reelected. The auditor was ratified and my proposal was passed. And a couple days later, uh, they they published on Edgar, which is the SE, with the SEC. You can find these things by going to um, Edgar. Uh, in the case of a BDC, which I think a lot of people should be looking at BDCs, you do company search, not fund search. It's a company search. And um, uh, the name of this one is firsthand. And you can find all of these documents. It's an incredibly rich source of information, especially the proxy announcement by the firm with regard to a vote. Under Dodd-Frank, they're required to, to give us a lot of valuable information. Now, that... So, um, the Sorry, the, the that 500-word, what did you say, was a talker that you gave? Yeah, and, and the defense of the proposal in writing. Is do, you, do, you have, do you have a link to that that you could send me after the show that I could put in the show notes? Absolutely. Okay, uh, that would proposal. be great. I think oh, that would be very yes. interesting for listeners to, to read. Yep. And that was published in their proxy statement. But, yes, I'll, okay. I'll send that to you. That would be great. So they announced the, that vote right away. Well, I took a look at that vote. Um, it was in the middle of the COVID thing, and I was selling my, one of, uh, one of, a house of mine, and I didn't get to study it as quickly as I should have. But as I studied it, it didn't make any sense. Something was funky about the voting results, right? Something was funky about the voting. And I, and I really cannot say that it was with evil intent, but it was certainly with incorrect results. Uh, and that is that when a brokerage votes, uh, when when you own shares in, in stock, you usually own them with a brokerage firm in what's called the street name. Mm -hmm. And you're not really a, a holder of record of those shares. You know, Schwab or Fidelity or whoever holds those for their long positions and their short positions net. And uh, 
uh, you're you're uh, an economic owner, but not a legal direct owner of those shares. And that was one of the complications with me getting to speak at the meeting, by the way. So um, uh, it was that you owned it in street name, not in your name. Most of it. uh, Yeah, I had it all in my street name. and That's a problem. And I moved some of it now to to my name, uh, direct name. So uh, um, anyways, when the Schwab then sends the proxy to its shareholders and say, do you want to vote? And if you want to vote, how do you vote? Most shareholders don't respond. And that's called the broker non-vote. It means that the shares were held by a broker, but there was no vote. Now, don't want to dig too far into the the weeds here, but the... uh, please. It's interesting. Okay, good. This is an important thing uh, that uh, the rule came out that broker non-votes should not be counted automatically by the company for the company. It should be as if they never took place, which is a wonderful, wonderful rule. So the only votes that are supposed to be counted in it for a normal company is the ones where people actually voted. So there's two issues here. The first is the shares that are held by the brokerage firm on behalf of clients, unless there's specific instructions by the client, for most companies that should not be counted. By the way, there's another issue, and that's the shares that are held by pension funds and and mutual funds and stuff. They tend to be voted by those institutions, and they listen very closely to proxy firms. The two biggest proxy firms are ISS, Institutional Shareholder Services, and Glass uh, uh, Lewis. Uh, Those are the two big proxy firms. So it's important for your proposal to be good enough that ISS and Glass-Lewis will say, hey, I, we recommend you go along with this. And I believe that that's what happened in this case, at least with ISS, because they, they corresponded with me and I provided the defense of my proposal. So uh, it was great. Um, uh, and, and it passed, but I was disappointed that the others passed. But as I looked into it, I realized that the broker non-vote was counted in favor of the management's directors and, in my opinion, the auditor. And somebody that's uh, some of your listeners who might be very bright and on top of this might argue that, well, mutual funds were given a special exclusion about this broker non-vote. And the special exclusion, and this is true, is this, that if you registered under the 1940 Investment Company Act, you are allowed to count the broker non-vote in favor of what the management is setting forth. If it, is an, if it is a routine matter, and a routine matter is described for a broker, uh, for a directors as it's not contested. The, uh, the, the uh, firm voted on, uh, nominated these two directors, and nobody else has put in an opposing slate. That's a routine matter, and the broker non-vote can be counted. And they said, look, we need this because most mutual fund investors don't uh, vote their shares. And... Um, uh, People with positions in mutual funds don't vote their shares, so we we need to that to get a majority. We need to get a quorum and stuff like that. So that favor was granted to mutual funds. Now, here's the two things that are fascinating about this case. First of all, SVVC is a BDC, and BDCs are not, technically speaking, registered under the Investment Company Act. They're regulated under the Investment Company Act. BDCs are registered under the 33 Uh, SEC Act. So I don't think this has been settled by the SEC. This this is a huge issue. 
uh, and this is the first time I'm going public with it, uh, I think, and that is that I, it's my, my personal opinion, I'm not a lawyer, my personal opinion that BDCs uh, are not eligible for this exemption and that BDCs should not be allowed in any votes to count the broker non-vote. I could be wrong, but that's my opinion. And I think I'm going to start to take this up with the SEC. So is the SEC not currently reviewing that? That uh, I don't the think vote, the legitimacy of the vote. Oh, the, yeah, they have. They have. Oh, they have. Okay, okay. The other thing I want to get in real quick, though, is that when I read SVVC's proxy with regard to the vote, the proxy said you they would not count the broker non-vote. That so I wrote to the SEC and I said, look, their proxy said they weren't going to count the broker non-vote. They counted, in my estimation, they counted the broker non-vote. They need to redo it. Well, it's September 15th or so, no announcement, no nothing. Uh, SVVC comes out with an announcement that completely redid the votes. And mm-hmm. I can't really make a lot of sense of them because the numbers don't seem to jive in my mind with regard to auditor. But it reversed the election of one of the two directors. So one of the directors was affirmed uh, because uh, that... Um, I think that director owns over 600,000 shares, and by voting for himself, he would have almost guaranteed his election on that uh, vote. And the other director did not get elected. The auditor got affirmed, and I don't, I don't understand that vote. And frankly, uh, I think uh, I've asked, I have asked the SEC to investigate that. Uh, and the, the, the final vote that you can find in this September 15th filing. Uh, is like two to one in favor of my proposal. And if you exclude the uh, the one director's shares, which are massive, old, over 600,000 shares, I believe, uh, that director, the board of directors voted unanimously against my proposal uh, prior to the meeting. So it's assumed that the director doesn't like the proposal. If you take out that director's holdings from that vote, and I'm just speculating, Mm-hmm. It would be a 10 to 1 vote by the shareholders in favor of my proposal. That's how upset shareholders oh. are. So, so what are you um, doing going forward? Um, what I'm doing, are you still there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, thanks. What, what I'm doing um, is I've, I've asked the SEC to reconsider the auditor vote. I've also asked the SEC to look in another matter. And I think I'm now going to ask the SEC to... Um, uh, rule on whether BDCs can use this exemption at all. And on a go-forward basis, uh, I'm considering another proposal for their May meeting. And uh, when, 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 You said May? Uh, the next meeting will be in May, okay. yes. But pro- proposals are due in November. I'm considering another proposal and, uh, and some other tactics uh, because I, I, you know, the board is unanimously against this proposal. Uh, and it... it I'm suspicious that that when you're collecting 2% management fees on this enormous net asset value that they claim is true, I'm I'm concerned that they they're they're not going to liquidate the fund despite the shareholders' wishes. Yeah. I'd love it if they did, but I'm 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 from uh, I want to make sure. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, inter- very interesting stuff. Um, any info you could uh, send in links that I could put in the show notes uh, when we're after the show would be appreciated and you know i'll post that up to the listeners to to read and uh is there is there anything else you think is worth uh mentioning be, before we get going 
I'd ask you, I'd urge your listeners to take a look at this BDC sector. And this is tricky. This is tricky investing. Mm -hmm. But some of those BDCs are trading at discounts of 50, 60, 70 percent from their net asset value. So the first thing you have to ask is, are those net asset values real? And in some cases, they're, they're being issued with a delay and they might not be real. But I think some of it is real. BDCs fell, are, are, fell into real disfavor after the COVID crash. So um, take a look at those BDCs. There's some good websites. One of them, uh, you know, will actually calculate all these statistics for you and give you a ton of information. The other question what's is- the, what's, the, what's that website? You know, I think it's called BDC Investor. I'm not sure, but if you get uh, after the show, just email me a bunch of links. I will. Good on that. The other question is, if the net asset value is real, uh, is that value ever going to get delivered to the shareholders? And here's where you really need to be careful, because the fees in these funds are enormous, and there's a, a a tactic that some of them are using which is called bifurcating the incentive fee, which I could spend a lot of time getting into the weeds about. But the bottom line is this. It gives the managers this incentive to go out and buy incredibly risky debt because if that debt pays off its coupon, they get a huge slice of that in the form of an incentive fee. And if they default, it doesn't eat away the incentive fees. They've, they've separated the return into an income, uh, uh, interest stream and a capital gain stream, so they can go out and buy incredibly high coupon, high risk debt. They get a slice of the income coming in on that interest, but the defaults, the capital losses, don't offset that. Hmm. That's that's the bifurcation of the incentive fees in these BDCs. Look, we all have to remember that mutual funds and BDCs have as their organizing objective collecting fees on behalf of the organizers, the sellers, and the managers of those funds. That's what they're there for. When I go to a restaurant, I know that the restaurant is, is being built to make money for the employees and the, and the managers. Uh, but in the area of investments, there's an awful lot of pressure. And I'll throw in one other inst- for instance of this. If the fund or the corporation is organized in the state of Maryland, of course, they serve the entire country, but if, they're, if they file their... their uh, organizational documents uh, with the state of Maryland. Maryland has these incredible anti-shareholder provisions. So uh, uh, when you see a fund and BDC, uh, SVBC is one of them that organizes in Maryland, it should be a huge warning sign that shareholder activism might not be able to occur. And if shareholder activism cannot occur, management can 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 confiscate, I would use the word confiscate, an awful lot of the wealth. Interesting. So you want, to be, you want to be real careful. Got it. Well, anyway, very interesting as always, Don. And awesome. uh, look forward I'll to... Okay, that sounds great. Well, have a good rest of your day, Don. I'll send you the links. Thanks. Great. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.